Very good. And now this afternoon, I'd invite you to turn with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. You're aware, I'm sure, that uh, it's a matter of controversy as to who wrote this epistle. There is no author that is identified by name. And uh, you can make the case that Paul is the author. You can also make the case, I suppose, that he's not. People can argue both sides of that. So if you hear me along the way refer to Paul as the author, then uh, bear with me. If you don't believe that he is, well, practice condescending grace and humor me until you get occasion to refute me, after which I will never refer to Paul again as the author. But at any rate, chapter 12, I'm going to read a section beginning in verse 18 down to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, Let me pause here just long enough to point out that the author is referring to that setting in the book of Exodus, chapter 19, in which the Ten Commandments were given. It was a fearful display of the presence of God. Verse 20, For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Another note with regard to that verse, and that is that the author of Hebrews is supplying us with that historical detail. You don't actually find that in the narrative in Exodus. But believing as we do that it is the Holy Spirit that led men to write the Bible, here is something that was communicated to the author that, uh, that Moses was not told to write, that when Moses saw the sight, he did exceedingly fear and quake. Verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, 
that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to the exhortation that's given to us in verse 28, that part of the verse that says, Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Let us have grace that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Some regard these verses we've read as providing a fitting climax to the argument that's permeated much of this epistle to the Hebrews. The argument simply that the new dispensation or the new age is superior to the old. And there are many other comparisons that are made in the course of this letter, but this one is most significant. And indeed, if Paul is the author of this letter, you could say that this is a perspective on his part that got him in the most hot water with the Jews. His suggestion that the old age is done that the new age has been inaugurated, okay? And the new age is superior to the old. The two dispensations, and when I use that word dispensations, that's a valid word, that's a legitimate word. We are not dispensationalists in this church, okay? We do not hold to that form of theology that draws such a hard and fast distinction between Israel and the church and seeks to explain various prophetic things that way. Uh, No, we are not of that theological persuasion. Having said that, however, that does not mean that we can't use the word dispensation. It's a valid word. It refers simply to uh, a time period, to a season, if you will. So the two dispensations that are presented to us in this chapter come to us under the emblem of two mountains. There's Mount Sinai and there's Mount Zion. And would you notice that the believer is depicted as having avoided the one, but having come to the other. For ye are not Come unto the mount that might be touched, verse 18. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, verse 22. Verse 18 could literally read, You have come unto Mount Zion. The tense of the verb have come is an interesting tense for which there is no exact parallel in English. It is a perfect tense verb. And the perfect tense verb in the Greek depicts a past action that has ongoing results. Perhaps the most famous example of the perfect tense verb in the Greek is found in the words of Christ when he announces from the cross, it is finished. 
That is a perfect tense verb. It is finished. And here is a finished action, but one that has through the ages brought forth ongoing results. The fact that Christ could announce it is finished has brought, like I say, ongoing results through the gospel. So a good illustration of what the perfect tense is in Greek. In similar fashion, we may understand the words of Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion in the past upon your conversion to Christ, and the result of your coming to this mount brings forth ongoing results in your lives. We are or should be familiar with some of those results. As a result of coming to Mount Zion, you have gained the sure hope of heaven. As a result of coming to Mount Zion, you have gained everlasting life. As a result of coming to Mount Zion, you have gained a faith that will persevere and a love for holiness that will motivate you to pursue holiness. Barnes, in his commentary, Albert Barnes, notes this, In the passage before us, the apostle evidently contrasts Sinai with Mount Zion and means to say that there was more about the latter that was adapted to win the heart and to preserve allegiance than there was about the former. And as we come then to the end of chapter 12, We see also that the difference between these mountains is something the apostle is drawing from to give force to the exhortations at the end of the chapter. It's as if he's saying this, because you haven't come to the mountain that can be touched, but have instead come to Mount Zion, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh, verse 25. And because you have come to Mount Zion and in the process have received a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's where worship should lead us. That's where our service should lead us to reverence and godly fear. So this is what I want to draw your attention to today this exhortation to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The verse indicates to us, doesn't it, that not all service rendered to God is necessarily acceptable. We think that God ought to be pleased that as his creatures we would serve him at all. That's the way some carnal men think and some Christians think we're doing God a great favor to worship him at all, no matter how we worship him. And people given to that kind of mindset think that any service rendered to God ought to be pleasing to him and ought to be acceptable by him. But as this text points out, if our service to God is to be acceptable to him, then it must be accompanied with two things, two things which really amounts in large measure to the same thing when I refer to reverence and godly fear. If these things are absent, 
then the form of our service will hardly matter. It will still be unacceptable to God. What I'd like to do this morning, or this afternoon rather, for a few moments, is demonstrate the place that the two mountains mentioned in these verses play in contributing to the service that is rendered acceptably with reverence and godly fear. How do these two mountains guide us in that kind of worship? We must serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And the question I'll try to answer this afternoon quite simply is, how is that to be done? How do we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? Consider with me, first of all, we serve God acceptably this way by avoiding the wrong mountain. We have to avoid the wrong mountain. Again, the words of verses 18 and 19 for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. We have not come to that mountain, nor do we want to attempt to approach God by scaling that mountain. The theology of that mountain Mount Sinai tells us that God is unapproachable by sinners. This is the mountain of the law, and the law does two things. It reveals the holiness of God, and it magnifies the sinfulness of man. The emphasis in Exodus 19, which is where this description comes from, is that the Israelites were to keep back they were warned by Moses to keep back. And before Moses was called up to the mount, he was first sent back to warn the children of Israel again. And the reason for the warning, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Exodus 19.21 And again, verse 24 in Exodus 19 and the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee. But let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. Oh, everything in this picture contributes to the truth that in these circumstances, God is unapproachable. And the clear impression conveyed by this appearance of the Lord was that it took restraint on the Lord's part to not unleash his wrath upon people that were sinful. And everything about this appearance of the Lord contributed to making it a terrible manifestation of God. And by terrible, I mean fearful. And after the people heard the voice of the Lord, pronounced the Ten Commandments, we're told in Exodus 20 and verse 18, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. 
Oh, they could sense the difference, couldn't they, between the character of God being altogether majestic and holy and their own character being altogether sinful. And it created a fear within their hearts. We cannot endure this, Moses. Uh, Do not put us in this situation again. Interesting that in the parallel passage to this, in Deuteronomy 5, we're given an even more detailed account of the reaction of the people to this terrible revelation of God. So in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 24, we read, And ye said, this is Moses now reflecting on the Mount Sinai experience, He's looking back in retrospect upon that occasion. And it is his words. It says, And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more than we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go thou near and hear all that the Lord our God shall say and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee and we will hear it and do it. Do you get the picture of what they're pleading for? You be the mediator, Moses. You go and speak to him. You go and listen to him. And then you bring to us what he says to you because we cannot endure what we have just experienced with the Lord descending in fire upon Mount Sinai. Rather interesting to note, and this is something quite rare in Scripture, that this is an instance in which the Lord actually commended the children of Israel for the wisdom of their words. So we read in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 28, And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. Oh, the Lord understood completely, and the Lord was on board for what they were suggesting. The whole point being, then, that the Lord is not approachable through Mount Sinai. Now, there are some commentators and theologians who have held the view regarding the giving of the law at Mount Sinai that this was not simply a new and different administration of the covenant of grace, but but that it was also, and maybe more so from their uh, perspective and opinion, a restatement and a fuller statement of the covenant of works. That's a matter of some debate, even in reform circles these days. Was this a restatement of the covenant of works when the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai? The emphasis on obedience and the penalty of death for disobedience, as well as the promise of life where obedience was rendered, all contribute to this notion that on Mount Sinai the covenant of works was republished, so to speak. This does not, of course, take away from the notion that there was also an administration of grace 
that occurred on that occasion. The sacrificial system or the ceremonial law which would be given provided for sins to be forgiven. But as a matter of emphasis, the Old Testament places such a strong emphasis on the law that John could write in his gospel that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So there is a notable distinction between the two dispensations in terms of emphasis. Paul could also refer to this covenant at Sinai as a ministration of death. So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And there you have a clear statement by Paul that we are living in, an, in a dispensation right now that is more glorious than the Old Testament dispensation of the law, that dispensation knowing a glory of its own. We cannot, therefore, serve God acceptably by coming to this mountain And yet there were Judaizers in Paul's day that would suggest that this was how God must be approached and served. And even in the church, there were those that would set forth the notion that obedience to the law contributed to the salvation of a person, and that person could not be saved without rendering that obedience. The Galatians were being lured into thinking that they had to approach God through Mount Sinai, so to speak. The history of the church demonstrates to us a tendency on the part of the church to fall prey to that same notion. This mountain arguably could be called the mountain of the Church of Rome. And during the Dark Ages, it was as if Rome convinced her followers that the church was in charge of this mountain, And one could only be saved through obedience to the church. This is why I've said on numerous occasions that when you read the Ten Commandments, it's very important to ever keep in mind the setting in which the Ten Commandments were given. So terrible was the sight, we just read in Hebrews 12, 21, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. This mountain does play a significant role in shaping us for serving God acceptably, as we'll see before we're done this afternoon. But let's not ever harbor the notion that our approach to God and our service to God is through Mount Sinai. Such thinking only reveals a vast ignorance about the pure character of God, as well as a sense of puffed-up pride regarding our own character. That was the trouble with the Pharisees. They actually deceived themselves into thinking they were rendering acceptable obedience to God. And my, how great was the need for Christ to set them straight, which he does in his Sermon on the Mount. Our text tells us that we have not come to this mount 
Let's make sure that we never come to such a mount in our approach and service to God. This is the negative side of our study then. Well, let's shift gears and go to the positive element now by thinking upon the truth that if we would serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, we must do so not only by avoiding the the wrong mountain, but we must do so by coming to the right mountain. There is, in the words of Hebrews 12, uh, a wrong mountain and a right mountain, if you will. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, verse 18, but rather ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, verse 22. The contrast between these mountains couldn't be greater. The one is foreboding, the other is inviting. The one ministers death, the other ministers life. The one creates in us fear and trembling. The other stirs us to humble praise and thanksgiving. The one leaves us in isolation. The other brings us to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. The one makes approaching and serving God impossible. The other enables us to approach God and serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. The thing that must be noted here is that it is Jesus that makes all the difference between these two mountains. We are come, you see, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, verse 24, We should note here as well how the text depicts these things as present blessings and present possessions for the follower of Christ. The text does not say that one day you will come to Mount Zion, but that you have come to Mount Zion. We may, of course, anticipate the day when our voices will join the voices of just men made perfect in heaven, and we will be made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. But the fact that the kingdom of grace will one day blossom into the kingdom of glory doesn't mean that the blessings of Mount Sinai are not ours now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. He doesn't say who will bless us with all spiritual blessings, but that he hath blessed us with these things. And so this tells us that redemption is a present blessing that having our sins forgiven is a present blessing. Having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is a present blessing. And our citizenship in heaven is a present blessing, one that exists right now. And the reason these things can be right now blessings to us is because they are present blessings to Christ 
and our lives are hidden in him, and we are joined in spiritual and mystical union to him. The challenge to gospel obedience, then, is quite different from the impossible challenge of scaling Mount Sinai. The challenge of gospel obedience is to count these present blessings by faith to be ours on account of Jesus Christ. I've referred to Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 as being that text that presents to us what I take to be the essence of gospel obedience. This is where Paul exhorts us to Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are to reckon that to be the case. That word reckon is the same word as the word impute in the Greek. We reckon or we count these things to be so. How can we count ourselves then dead indeed unto sin when we feel ourselves to be so alive unto sin? Or how can we count ourselves to be alive unto God when we feel at times often that we are dead toward God and alive toward the world? Or if I could express the dilemma in terms of our text in Hebrews, how can I count myself to have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God when I'm surrounded by a world of sin and woe that is bent against God? How can I count myself as having come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven when I live in a world that sees the kings and rulers of the world taking counsel together against Christ? This all becomes the challenge of faith. And the way the challenge is met is by keeping in mind that you have also come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. You see yourselves in him, not in some make-believe or psychological fashion. You see yourselves in him because you believe the truth that God sees you in him. And because God sees you in his Son, God sees you as dead to sin and alive to God, because Christ is dead to sin, has died to sin once, and is alive to God. And God sees you as members of that general assembly in the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And God hears the speaking blood, bearing witness that you are his purchased possession, and that the burning wrath of Mount Sinai has been appeased, and the demands of the law have been satisfied. And through this reckoning process, a process that is exercised by faith, you are enabled to approach God, to commune with God, and to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You begin to see what strong motivation Mount Zion provides for us when it comes to serving God. So we have a mountain to avoid. 
We have a mountain to embrace, so to speak. Let me, in closing this study, just say a word about how both mountains contribute to reverence and godly fear. Both mountains have a part to contribute. We've been noting the contrast between the two mountains, and while that contrast definitely exists, and while the lesson we draw from that contrast is that there is a mountain to be avoided and another mountain to be embraced, this does not take away from the fact that there is a unifying factor to these mountains, that unifying factor being God himself. That needs to be stated because there are those unbelieving Bible critics who will go so far as to say that there are two different deities represented in the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament who is stern and harsh and who judges and condemns. And there's the God of the New Testament who is kind and gracious and merciful and loving. And the difference between these deities is so vast that two completely gods must be in view. So the critic says in expressing his opinion. We reject that notion, of course. And would you note one particular statement in verse 23? In coming to Mount Zion, we have come, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. At first glance, it might seem that the phrase, God, the judge of all, should have been assigned to Mount Sinai rather than Mount Zion. Perhaps the reason we find this statement in accordance with Mount Zion is so that we'll know that it is the same God of both mountains. And while we do not attempt to approach or serve God by scaling Mount Sinai, this does not mean that Mount Sinai doesn't have any impact on our service to God and to Christ. Very important here to note the order of the mountains. Mount Sinai comes first, and Mount Sinai must always come first. Before we can be ready for Mount Zion, we must first learn the theology of Mount Sinai. We must know and appreciate that God is pure and majestic and holy and powerful. And we, by contrast, are defiled and sinful and rebellious as well as helpless and hopeless before a thrice holy God. If we attempt to skip Mount Sinai before coming to Mount Zion, then we will never appreciate the greatness of God's salvation or our need for that salvation. We will never adequately understand what salvation by grace through faith means. So Mount Sinai does have a part in teaching us the fear of God. Indeed, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, Moses explains to the Israelites that this terrible and fearful manifestation of God served a purpose. God is come to prove you, Moses said, and that his fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. 
But oh, it's very important that we have and that we ever keep in view the theology of Mount Sinai and what it reveals about God. Mount Sinai does contribute to our fear of the Lord, but our fear of the Lord does not end at Mount Sinai. You remember what I said earlier, how some theologians believe that in the covenant of Mount Sinai, you have a republication, so to speak, of the covenant of works. If that indeed be the case, then how much more shall we esteem Christ who came in order to fulfill the covenant of works? Keep ever in mind that the covenant of grace is the fulfilling of the covenant of works. Not by you, not by me. We could never fulfill the covenant of works, but Christ could, and he did. For that reason, he is called twice in the New Testament the second Adam doing what the first Adam failed to do, which was to render obedience to God. And by keeping this in mind, our esteem for Christ will grow. Here is one, after all, who didn't need to tremble and quake before the law of God. Here is one who walked in perfect obedience to that law in all its demands. And here is one who, although he would certainly dread Mount Calvary and would sweat drops of blood in a state of agony as he anticipated Calvary, he is one who nevertheless could and did bear that wrath. The wrath that God must restrain at Mount Sinai is now unleashed in its fullness upon Christ. And still Christ could bear it and Christ could prevail through it until at last Christ could say, it is finished. And then and only then was the way made for us to approach God through Mount Zion, as it were. And so both mountains contribute to serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Mount Sinai brings us low. Mount Sinai reminds us of our helpless and hopeless estate. And then Mount Zion lifts us up and brings us to the city of the living God. It brings us to the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. It brings us to these places because it brings us to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. As we contemplate these two mountains then, Let's make sure that we avoid the one and come to God by the other. And let's make sure that we recognize the contribution that both mountains make to our service to God. And in that recognition, we will be equipped to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Let's close then in prayer.
O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for what Christ has done. We thank thee for the obedience that he rendered to his Father. We thank thee for the sense in which he could scale Mount Sinai because he and he alone could and did render perfect obedience to God. And then he paid our debt for our failures and our sins. We thank thee, Lord, for Mount Zion, for the spiritual Mount Zion. We thank thee that thou hast blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that thou wilt help us, therefore, to strive for the right thing in the right way, knowing as we do these two mountains and how they work together to teach us godly fear. So, Lord, stamp the lessons of thy word on our hearts that we may walk with thee in the light of thy word and that we might be the better equipped to glorify and enjoy thee. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.